coming to this, uh, this session of the IMI seminars. Today we have Heidi um, Haas, who is the co-director of IMI, as you may know. And he has been working extensively on issues of migration and development. And, and lately, this big project, uh, which has been a starting grant awarded to him by the, by the ERC, uh, the Derby project on determinants of international migration. And today is a little bit of the um, state of the art of the project and, and conceptualizing a little bit more this broad theme of, of uh, migration policies and effectiveness of migration policies. So, yeah, we'll have to use about 30, 35 minutes and then minute. Okay, wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. Perhaps the title is a bit deceiving. I mean, this is uh, basically, as the subtitle says, a sort of work in progress update because the Demic project is coming of age to copy a sentence used this morning by one of my colleagues about another project. We're sort of, uh, this is a five-year project. It's a fantastic grant. How often do you get five years to, to run a project? Uh, and we are in our fourth year, so we really have to come up with some stuff now. So, <laughs> sort of, uh, I can't just rambling on very conceptually. So, you can put me a little bit more on the spot today. So, I will try to show how our thinking has evolved in a way on the issue. Um, how also the project has evolved, and I think to a certain extent we may have rephrase some of the way we posed the questions in the beginning, just because we became aware perhaps the initial questions weren't exactly the right ones. I mean, we haven't totally changed the project at all, but I think we have try started to look differently uh, at the issues at stake. Now, um, this is part of a European Research Council, a so-called starting grant, so I'm still a starting researcher. The sort of senior grants are for people who are almost up to retirement, apparently. Um, uh, and it's got general, generous co-funding from the Oxford Martin School. Which has allowed us particularly to expand our data sort of collection capacities. And I will come back to the, the data efforts we've been doing over the last few years later on. And it's part of the broader IMI research program, Global Migration in the 21st Century. Um, the project team is, 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 has been growing. Um, <laughs> Matthias, Simona, Maria, we have a DPhil student attached to the project. Olinka and Anais have done great work on the data as well. And we're in the process of recruiting one new research assistant for the last two years and a postdoc researcher. So we've been working with quite a extensive group, but also we have been working with some researchers in other universities across Europe who are also interested in so-called sending country perspectives on migration. Now, this is the issue. Bagwati's famous quote, the ability to control migration has shrunk as the desire to do so has increased. Borders are largely beyond control and little can be done to really cut down on immigration. A bold statement. I think two-thirds or three-quarters, roughly, of migration research, I now sort of believe this. They, they think, okay, if policy have any effect, it's very small, it's often counterproductive. To give one example, the guest worker experience often is used to say, or restrictions actually push people into settlement, so they do exactly the reverse that the policy actually aim to do. But there is, I think, a smaller literature that is more critical that tries to say, actually, if you look, Closely, there is no major migration control crisis. By and large, most migrants are legal. 
uh, irregular migrants attract a lot of attention, but most migrants just apply for work permits or resident permits, they apply for citizenship. That system is actually working quite well. And the stuff that hits the headlines in the Daily Mirror is the marginal stuff. It's not the real issue. Actually, the immigration system, the border regimes work quite well. We all pass through the to the gates in, in, in Heathrow and we have our passport checked. So is the system really out of control? So where are we talking about? So this is not only an empirical issue, and this is really something that I think the project has yielded so far. It's first and foremost a conceptual issue. What do we mean if we say borders are under control? Or if we say migration policies have failed or have failed to meet their stated objectives? But there's also empirical issues underlying this, that there is this contested effectiveness of policies reveals something broader, a sort of a limited understanding of what drives migration in the first place, and more specifically, what is the role of states and policies. We may all agree that they play a role, some would say an important role, but what is their exact role? To what extent do we see those counterproductive effective policies that are often claimed in the sort of migration policy literature? There is actually a weak connect between the literature that is very quantitative and tries to look at uh, migration determinants that use gravity models, often econometricians or demographers do those type of analysis, and that other literature which you can call political economy of immigration policy literature, which is mostly from political science, that seems disconnected from what does this policy actually do to migration flows. It sort of assumes that those policies are implemented and to some extent effective. Now, if we look at this literature of migration determinants and this sort of uh, provided the motivation to, to, to start this project in the first place, is that, first of all, a very strong receiving country bias. There is somehow this assumption that there is this quasi-unlimited pool of poor people out there that are ready to immigrate whenever we open or, open or close the tap. So it's a sort of image of there's this huge migration pressure. It's only the sort of receiving side that matters. Whereas we know this is problematic. And this is linked to this kind of push-pull type of models that are usually run that try to explain migration just based on wage differentials between countries and doesn't really go in depth in why do people actually migrate? Is it actually the poorest that migrate more? What is the effect of development on migration? And we know there are many paradoxes, like often development increases migration initially. I mean, I can't go into that whole literature, but the models that are used to study migration determinants are based on very simplistic assumptions on what drives migration in the first place. Another point is the one-sided focus on economic and, and demographic factors, sort of negligence of political and cultural factors in, in driving migration, both from a sending and receiving country perspective. The most tricky issue is if you try to look at the role of policy and, and immigration processes, of course, how do you measure it? We can do it qualitatively, we can do it quantitatively. If we want to do it quantitatively, how are we going to measure a policy? How can we, so to say, convert a policy into a numerical variable? Is this a useful exercise in the first place? Or is it so, do we sort of reduce too much a complex policy package to just one simple dummy variable? Is this useful or not? But I think a broader issue is a limited conceptualization of the role of states in general immigration. We know it's important, but how does it actually work? Now, these omitted variables and factors often lead to biased and potentially misleading analysis of what actually drives migration and what is the effect of policy. Just two examples. Um, 
implementing Turkish immigration to countries like the Netherlands and Germany, policymakers have been keen to claim this is the effect finally of the measures to restrict family immigration and low-skilled labor immigration. But just knowing that Turkey has tripled its GDP per capita just in 15 years, it's not, not rocket science to think there may be other factors at play, and perhaps we ascribe things to policies that have nothing to do with policies. Second example is the rise and fall of asylum flows. I think there's a great study by Tim Hatton that has already showed that asylum policies, I think in the case of Britain and some other European countries, do have had some, had some influence in reducing flows of asylum seekers to European countries, but actually it was not, not the most important factor. The most important factor were fluctuations in levels of conflict in origin countries. I think these two examples show that we need to take this seriously about what actually drives migration before we start looking at the role of policy in particular. So the research gap of this that this project sort of is trying to fill is it is unclear how policies affect migration when we control or account for the effects of other migration determinants, both in receiving and in sending countries. And the more general theoretical aim is to generate new insights into the way states and policies shape migration processes in their interaction with other determinants. And I think the sort of twist we put on this, because in the original proposal there was policies, and the more we discuss, we think, if we really want to understand these dynamics, we need to think about the state more in general. Because states influence migration in many more ways than just through migration policies. So if you just think about the creation of, of, of the nation state, uh, the imposition of border regimes, about welfare policy, economic policy, I mean, there are many policy areas where states have a huge influence, but are not necessarily seen as migration policies. And the question we try to address is how do states and migration policies, both of receiving and sending states, affect the size, but not just the volume, but also the timing, direction, nature, and composition of international migration. And we identified some sub-questions. Also, more or less in the first year, because we increasingly realized that when we want to understand what the role of a policy in a particular country is on migration, we need to understand the broader picture. And again, in the literature, there's lots of assumptions about what has been changing in global migration over the last 50 years that at least can be questioned. The assumption that migration has increased at a massive scale or has become much more diverse just by casually looking at the data can be questioned. Where is this really a global process? And we need to understand what has changed in the global pattern before we zoom in to particular sending and receiving countries. And if we see those shifts in international migration patterns, what factors account, uh, account for those changes? And then zooming in more, what then within that broader set of migration determinants has been the role of policies in the basically the post-Second World War period? And the fourth question is much more sort of the focused empirical question. Again, rehashing the question I just uh, showed to you is what is the effect on size, timing, duration, direction of international migration? And the project methodology consists of, of basically four parts. The first is developing a theoretical framework to rethink about what drives migration and what is the role of, of policy and states in that broader whole. The second is to review and categorize receiving and sending country migration policies. And the third part is the creation of the databases we actually need for the quantitative parts of our empirical tests. And these are different databases I'll come back to, but they're on one hand focus on 
migration flows, but we also have uh, compiled policy databases. And the first three years we've been mainly doing one, two, and three. And we sort of at a stage that we produce some outputs now and we can move to the fourth part, which is somehow the proof of the padding with all this data and the sort of different ways we've tried to conceptualize drives of migration, we are going to, to run uh, empirical tests, analysis, partly quantitative and partly qualitative. Now this is a list, I mean, I can't go through all of them, but I just want to show, this is a list of working papers that have, has come out, and they sort of cluster around a series of different themes. So we have a few conceptual papers to try to conceptualize what is an immigration policy, what is effectiveness, uh, both from a receiving and sending country perspective. And what actually has been a nature evolution of, of, of immigration policies in the first place? For instance, have they really become more restrictive, as many people assume, or is it a more complex picture? Then we are about to publish a new working paper on trying to address the question, has the world really become mi more migratory? Can we see a globalization, increasing diversification of migration patterns, or do we see something else? Trying to understand what is going on. And a list of preliminary studies trying to look at different dimensions of migration determinants, both on a macro and a more micro level. Trying to look at, for instance, what is the role of development in migration? Is it true that if we look at the figures, if development increases, that more people start migrating in different ways? Uh, but also more at a micro level, trying to look at the role of aspirations and capabilities in migration processes. And a first paper that tried to look at what has been the role of independence on migration, because that's another way of looking at how states affect migration, and open and closed border regimes may change the way people migrate. <coughs> and in the rest of this presentation, I will try to present some sort of emerging issues out of the discussions and some preliminary insights and some sort of flavor of the data we have collected so far. To start with policies and the sort of need to conceptualize the role of states and policies and migration policies, first of all, what is a migration policy? Where do we draw the boundary? Because many, like I said, labor market policies or education policies or welfare or taxation policies will ultimately have an effect on migration. Where do we draw the boundary between what is a migration and what is a non-migration policy? Can we draw such boundaries? And if we say that the migration policy is a policy that primarily aims to affect migration, then still we need to unpack migration policies. Because if we look at realities, migration policies consist of many separate measures or laws or directives that are often conflicting. They are not, like states are not homogeneous units, migration policies are often a mixed bag of very different measures targeting very different groups. So is it then actually possible to say migration policies have become more restrictive? Because they often target particular groups. And this might be a deceiving image somehow, because if you look at the UK or many European countries, there's a sort of discourse being repeated and repeated that migration policies have become increasingly restrictive. Yes, for asylum seekers, for low-skilled workers, and perhaps in the most recent years some countries tried to make family migration more difficult. But for other categories, like the high-skilled or students, and if you look at the longer-term family migrants over the last 50 years, rights have been expanding and access has been expanding. So is it really useful to think about one index of restrictiveness, or do we really need to unpack? And what is policy effectiveness? How do we define that? 
And one of the things that came up in, in one of our conceptual papers is that the gap that often exists between a discourse by a politician promising zero immigration or a reduction of non-EU immigration to Britain below 100,000 is not always reflected in a parallel package of measures. So if we then see a big gap between what politicians proclaim and realities in migration, it doesn't necessarily measure or assess the effect of the policy if the policies weren't there in the first place. So we need to be aware of those gaps. And it's very deceiving to conclude that politicians claim on the one hand we want much less migration. We need to look at the actual policies that are being developed on paper and being implemented in reality. And here we often see big gaps. Last but not least, this idea of growing restrictiveness totally ignores the role of sending states. And historically, states have been very active in trying to influence outflows of their own citizens. And if there's one trend over the last 50 years, it has been the gradual lifting of immigration restrictions. So I think that may have counterbalanced any increase in restrictiveness on the receiving side. Again, we need to look at the sending country perspective. So, Matthias Tsaika, Simona Vezzoli and I, at some afternoon, we came up with this graph a year ago. We thought, okay, we have the <coughs> policy discourse, politicians proclaiming all sorts of things about migration, becoming often quite vague and overstated versions of what happens in reality. And of course, we have different interest groups. And I mean, people like Freeman and Holyfield and Boswell have extensively written about this. They try to influence those policies. And often these are conflicting interests of different political parties, trade unions, empl em uh, employers associations, they all have different. So the migration policy often is a much more watered down version of what you can find in the narratives of politicians. So this is what I said this is a discursive gap. But the second problem is that if a migration policy exists on paper, and I think Agnieszka can tell much more about this, there's a question about implementation of those policies. So the second gap, implementation gap, because not all policies on paper are implemented as they stand on paper. So there's a huge amount of discretion and policies are often internally conflicting and can counteract one another. So it's the second gap, implementation gap. And then we can say we have policies that are implemented, there's a second gap and efficacy gap because we have other migration determinants. It's not just the policy affecting the migration. So the danger is to observe a gap between the discourse and the actual migration flow and say this is policy failure. Because what we would do is using the discourse as a benchmark. Going to the second part of this graph, so we have migration and we have other migration determinants. And what role does the policy play in those processes? Now, here from the literature, we've tried to distill in, in one paper four different what is often called perverse or unintended effects of immigration restrictions in particular. And these will guide very much the empirical quantitative analysis we want to uh, conduct in the f coming two years. The first is quite known, it's this idea if you restrict, for instance, family immigration or labor immigration, it doesn't necessarily mean that people stop migrating, but they may come under different guises. So they may start migrating as a family migrant, for instance. So it's the category jumping. And you can also see a shift towards irregular migration as a form of category jumping. So it doesn't necessarily lead to less migration. People start migrating under different legal sort of banners. Another 
substitution effect is the intertemporal substitution. I like to nickname this now or never migration. There have been two cases already very well described in the literature by uh, Kerry Peach and by Hans van Amersfoort on the British and the Dutch West Indies that when they made increased migration restrictions or in the case of the Netherlands made Suriname independent in an attempt to restrict migration what followed was a huge hike in migration before the measures became into effect. So you may end up with more migrants than if you wouldn't have those measures in place. The third is what the Dutch call waterbed effects. It basically means spatial diversion. So one country tries to limit inflow of a particular category of migrants and migrants start to move to other countries or use those other countries as sort of transit points to eventually move to the country of, of destination. And the fourth one, which has received least attention, and that always surprises me because I find it intuitively, the one that makes intuitively the most sense is that even if it's true that even if this doesn't occur, and if migration restrictions indeed limit the number of people coming, what is it also likely to limit is the number of people returning. Because if you increase costs of migration, people are more likely to stay there where they are. And there are actually no studies that try to look at this. So the eventual effect on the number of people staying may actually be neutral or even positive. So, so these are sort of four reasons or mechanisms that have been identified and, and we've tried to put this in the paper um, that explain why migration policies often have unintended or so-called perverse effects. And the aim is now to test those central hypotheses within the project. Now we have sort of coming to the end of our conceptual work and the data collection. Now to give you a, a quick flavor of the, uh, the databases we have been collecting, um, we needed flow data in the first place. And we first compiled total flow data from a whole range of, of countries. But the second Bay database, the country to country, the C2C uh, database, is really the most important database we need because the only way of simultaneously looking at origin and destination factors is to have flows between individual countries. Because that's the only way we can create data analysis where we look simultaneously at mul multiple destinations and multiple origins. That's the only way to simultaneously look at origin and destination country factors. But perhaps the most tricky part, I mean, this is a huge operation. I mean, uh, Simona Vettori and Maria, uh, Maria Varela's, Villares Varela, I'm so sorry. Um, I mean, I've done enormous amount of work in the last two to three years to compile those data sets. Uh, and I'll go back a bit more into that later. But this is still in progress, in a way. These are the policy database, and we hope to complete them by, by this summer. But try to first qualitatively compile and track major policy changes that have occurred in many uh, countries. And the second stage has been the decision to create a visa database. Now the total flow database looks at total inflows, outflows in a range of countries. It includes 150 countries. Data go as far back as 1820 for two countries, Brazil and the USA, but for most countries it starts sort of in the early 1900s. And we drew this data on a whole range of sources, archives, historical demographic and migration statistical yearbooks. And the one thing we discovered is data availability is a totally relative concept. Um, and I think Chris will acknowledge that. That 
if you bring a statistical office and tell you the data is not available, it's often there somewhere. But it may be so inaccessible or so expensive to sort of uh, unveil that you may decide not to do it. And this is, I think, probably can spend the rest of your life, Maria and Simona, to undick all the migration data and the world. But I think you've done your share and you should leave that to other people. Um, this is just a quick overview of the numbers of countries in our current database that are reporting on uh, total flows. And the uh, red one is outflows, and the, the blue one is the inflows. And the, the, the green one is the net flows. And these spikes report basically reflect a few countries that only report these figures every five years. But you see the number of countries sort of increasing through time, although this is partly an artifact because we have mainly looked at uh, more recent periods. I think what is more revealing, and actually the data, that's another thing we discovered, the data already, this, uh, the, the type of data states collect already shows you something about what states find important and their own preoccupations. And I've, the most striking finding here is the graph that, uh, let's say in the, from the mid-19th century up to, let's say, the Great Depression, that sort of time, the obsession was with people moving out. Not so much with people moving in. And sort of regi registering inflows became only an issue as of the 1940s. I think it tells already a story. Also thinking about emigration policies matter. It's not just about inflows. This is very Eurocentric thinking. It's only about inflows. But even if you look at the history of Europe, there has been a preoccupation with outflows. Now, if you look at foreigners, of course, the inflow have always been an important issue, but if you look at your own citizens, the outflow, particularly in the past, has been an issue of prime interest. Moving to the country-to-country -country database, when the same issue applies here, we can look forever. There's always more data to discover. But here we put a sort of starting point after the Second World War. Another important innovation of the database is that we look at gender disaggregation, which other databases haven't done, like the one by the United Nations Population Division. And the result is a comprehensive bilateral data flow set, which includes long time series. We've really been focusing on collecting long time series because we can only understand migration trends if we have several decades. Gender, but also types of data. So country of residence, country of birth, and country of citizenship. And again, we can extend this in the future, but also backwards. But I think we reached now the point in the project if we sort of finalize the data set we have and we're going to use for analysis in the coming two years. Of course, there's many challenges, but I don't have time for that. A lot of challenges. And I think Simona and Maria have done whatever is possible to address those challenges. A quick overview also here, we have different starting dates of migration data series. Some countries really start early on. Another important observation is that it's not true that the further back you go, the worse the data gets. Some countries, for instance, classical migration countries in the past, like Spain, had quite good migration data in the past. It may have become more sloppy in recent periods, and this may also be the case for some Latin American countries. So we cannot just assume the further we go back in time, the worse it gets. But of course, we have more comprehensive data sets, more generally, <coughs> if we move more, move more closer to the present day. And I'm very happy because I applied with this similar research proposal twice with the Dutch Scientific Council of Research was rejected twice because people say the data doesn't exist. And I just drove them completely mad. I went to the European Research Council and they believed this was possible. So I think we've shown there is data. It's not perfect, there's problems, but there is data we can use. 
come back to this question. What is a migration policy? We try to come up with a definition. Laws, rules, measures and practices implemented by national states with the objective to influence the volume, origin, destination and composition. So whether you talk about labor or family and so on and so forth of immigration and immigration flows. So we do link it somehow to the objectives because we thought otherwise you really get lost. Many policies have migration implications. And the problem is, of course, when you want to measure them, that you have so many different types of policies that we thought it's useful, like we need to unpack the policy. We can't just say they have become more or less restrictive generally. We need to unpack them. And we need to distinguish different categories, like entry, post-entry, exit, integration, citizenship. So a lot of discussions have been about categorizing. And another observation is each of those measures may have different and conflicting objectives. May reduce the flows of certain categories and actually increase those of others. And I think high-scale migration policies is one example that go at par with policies to try to reduce inflows of low skills. Now, we have come up for our policy database with a basic threefold distinction of policy areas. Entry, post-entry and exit. And then we have further subdivisions to categorize those policies according to the specific policy area, for instance, whether these are administrative measures, border controls, citizenship issues, and so on and so forth, and the type of measure, what sort of instrument is being used, deportation, carrier sanctions, detention, uh, employer sanctions, uh, integration policies, and so on and so forth. And the fourth column is about the target population. Now what we try to do, because there's another big effort called Impala to make a sort of total comprehensive overview of migration policies, really tracking literally every single law. And on the other extreme, you have sort of generic assessment about has the policy become more restrictive or not. And what we try to do is find some middle ground with this threefold categorization to to break policies sufficiently down in order to be able to say have to have to become more or less restrictive for this particular group because we can't just summarize a policy for a whole different set of groups. And so we have started to put in a database of the last two and a half years for every country we are initially focusing on, which is primarily OECD countries but not exclusively, major policy changes. And as a basic instrument, we have used the yearly SOPIMI reports issued by the OECD since 1973. And I tell you, I've been reading them, we've been reading all of them, word by word, and we've been tracking major changes, and we've put them in a database. So we're not interested in the tiniest fine-tuning, but we have followed up by looking at national documentation on policy evolution to sort of back up whether we've missed anything, and we're fairly confident by reading all those reports that we have sort of been able to track major changes. To give you just one sample of Dutch policies, uh, 1988, tightening of asylum policies, broad policy area, entry, specific policy area, human rights, type of law, asylum, target population, refugees, individuals in need of protection. The color code is, has it become more or less restrictive to give some sort of sense of what happened. 1988, age of majority lowers from 20 to 18 also limits family migration of foreign children. Oh, that's not a category, right? More restrictive, but at the same time, the Dutch Ministry of Social Affairs has reluctantly agreed upon the recruitment of a limited number of foreign workers for the industry and seasonal work in the Dutch bulb industry, you see, the lobby of employers. A measure for low-skilled workers 
it shows the mixed bag sort of thing. So this is what we've been doing for many countries, try to track this. And we want to convert these into variables that we can actually use also in our quantitative assessment. Last but not least, we, in discussions, we thought it would be nice to come up not only with sort of these broad assessments about how policies have changed, but also with some sort of an assessment about particular measures. And there we discovered, I think it's Matthias who discovered, that we have these manuals of the International Air Transport Association that track for every month since 1973 global coverage of bilateral visa agreements for the travel visa. And we've been discussing, of course, the travel visa is not the same as an immigration regulation, but we thought actually it's an interesting proxy because if you look at the evolution of migration policies, visas were often presented as a way to block entry up front, to prevent overstaying and the growth of immigrant populations. And that the imposition of visa restrictions on particular uh, destination countries uh, can be a useful proxy to look at overall restrictiveness. And the other advantage is they also track exit restrictions. And this also allows us to look at efforts by states to try and regulate or restrict movement out of countries. So f we are really, I mean, we are really in the middle of this, and, and Maria is coordinating this. Um, so far we have covered 232 citizenships times 40, but in the end we want to arrive to 232 times 232 of this entire period. So it's becoming a huge panel of global bilateral visa data. So also if you want to know whether Burundi has a visa, imposed a visa for Bolivia, you can find it there in 1985. So it's complete global coverage. And I just when Maria did it actually, um, an, an average of the countries we have collected so far, the average number, it's just to give you a flavor, the average number of visa, the average number of nationalities countries impose visa restriction for. We see quite some interesting uh, uh, fluctuations over time and if we unpack this a little bit, we can also understand what may have been going on. The yellow line is formerly no, no, sorry. The, the brown line is former East Bloc countries. And of course, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, we see a sort of opening up of their visa regimes. If you look at West and Southern Europe, you see a gradual increase. And this may have to do with the imposition of visa regimes for North Africans, people from the Middle East and from African countries. Um, but we also see interesting other sort of developments, like just one country, South Africa. We see post-anti-apartheid, a rapid drop of visa requirements, but then sort of uptick. We need to explore what, what explains this. Perhaps it's sort of getting cold feet from their sort of open reception policy. So in North America, there's actually a slight decrease. And of course, this is only the beginning. We need to now look what are the countries targeted. And there seems to be some homogenization here. Is it perhaps true, is one of the hypotheses, there's been a sort of global diffusion, a sort of blacklisting of particular countries that most countries impose visa on. Is this becoming more a general pattern, or do we see very still, still very strong regional patterns? Is it the OECD world putting visa restrictions on anybody from a non-OECD country, or is the pattern more complicated? And it can really give us an insight in how states uh, try to regulate uh, inflows. Interestingly enough, quite some countries where you wouldn't necessarily expect it, like Nigeria, have one of the highest rates of visa imposition. So it's not necessarily 
perhaps intuitively some people would expect our rich OECD countries having the highest sort of barriers in, into entry. Actually, some countries show very odd patterns. Now, what do we do, want to do in the future before, before I wrap up my last slide? Is first of all to track the evolution of immigration policies. So we will use the policy database and the visa database to get a sense of what has been going on, to also unpack the assumption of growing restrictiveness. So what has really been going on? But also from a more empirical point of view, rather going beyond general statements here. Further exploration of patterns and determinants of migration and the total flow database can be very useful here. And of course the quantitative tests and uh, we try to test those substitution effects which are already mentioned but also try to look just at how do policy measures, including visas, growing restrictions, or actually the reverse of that, uh, trying, for instance, to recruit migrants, how does it affect migration flows if we control for other factors. Now, I think what's been exciting about the project has been a growing role of more qualitative comparative case studies. And uh, several research within the project have sort of explored new avenues uh, Simona Vezzoli has embarked upon a, a broader research project, also part of a PhD, to look at the Caribbean as an interesting test case. Because you can, can almost say it's sort of quasi-laboratory, because you have many states, some of which are completely independent, some of which them are still part of a colonial empire, so have bought open border regimes, and actually comparing those countries historically and um, in the present day is actually very interesting to get a take on what does it mean if border regimes are introduced? Does it decrease circulation? Does it lead to more permanent settlement? Or the reverse? Just one question and there are many more questions to look more critically at the role, active role of sending states in trying to affect migration. Because we have gender-specific migration dynamics data, particularly Maria wants to focus on what makes flows change gender comp composition? There's this big, bold statement about the feminization of migration. Now, again, if you look at total figures, not much has happened. But we do see very strong dynamics in particular migration flows where first women migrate or first men migrate, and they seem to be equalizing later on. But actually, this has been totally unexplored because of the lack of adequate data, and we now have the data to look at this. Also, Maria wants to look at the terms of return migration. I think that's another under-researched topic. And uh, Adam Mahendra, the first student on the project, is also putting an origin country focus uh, on his research and try to look at the role of financial and social policies in influencing migration patterns. And there's many more ideas. I'm unsure whether we can all do it in the coming two years. Um, I've been there. Okay, just to wrap up, I mean, I kind of mentioned most of them already. We haven't reached the stage where we can perhaps draw a little bit more uh, confident conclusions. But I think if one thing has become clear, we need to unpack policies. We need to look at which borders and whose movements are controlled. And that most policies primarily seem to be about selection rather than volumes. But discourses seem to focus on the volumes because that speaks to large audiences. Whereas you look at policy practices, it's often about selection. I mean, caps and quota are used by some countries, a minority of countries. Most countries look at entry rules. We see very high correlation between business cycles, economic growth, and immigration rates in quite a lot of countries, for instance, in Europe. Now, you can, on the one hand, interpret this is policy failure because it's the economy. You can also say, actually, the policy 
that tries to give people extra labor market dependent on job offers is actually working quite well. So are we talking about policy failure or not? And these gaps which I have mentioned, this discouragement implementation gap, can lead to misleading conclusions about policy failure. Because we still think that the policy that's actually developed and implemented should be the benchmark and not the discourse. And as far as there is already evidence, also from other research, of course we find that migration policy have effects. But they seem limited, but the main issue is that we need to aim for a more subtle assessment about the relative role compared to other determinants of migration. So, this is as quick as possible overview of this project, and uh, I hope you enjoyed it, and we have a little bit of time for questions.